0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, good morning, everyone. Move back to your seats. Lots to do, lots to do. Welcome, Swansons. to see you all this morning. Um, We are uh, kind of at the the beginning of a new series that we're doing called, uh, what are we calling it? Do we have that on there? A Generous Life, A Generous Common Life. That's what we're calling it. Your best life now uh, in 12 Easy Steps. (laughs) Um, no, we're doing it. This series is called a generous common life and we're taking one particular passage of Paul, uh, Galatians six, one through 10, and we're really slowing down and walking our way through it for the next three months or so. Uh, and then in this first portion, we're really talking about the importance of knowing ourselves. So perhaps you're familiar with this Cherokee legend. A grandfather's talking to his grandson and he says, within all of us, there are two wolves. One wolf is evil. It is malice. It is greed. It is resentment. It is self-pity. And the other wolf is good. It is love. It is compassion. It is patience. It is mercy. And these two wolves are always fighting uh, within you. And the grandson says, grandfather, how do I know which one's going to win? And he said, it's whichever one you're going to feed. And that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about today, that there's these uh, essentially these two wolves within each one of us. There are these two halves to what it means to be a person which necessitates the importance of why we know ourselves and we know ourselves clearly so that we can discern what's really happening within us. And specifically for us in the Christian household, what is it that the spirit of Jesus is doing inside of us? Um, and I think this is the kind of work that for me has really saved my faith. It's the sort of thing that's taken Christianity from being a set of propositions, uh, with these big, um, you know, kind of ideas floating around in the ether of sin and forgiveness and all of these things that we talk about, like we're moving uh, pieces around on a chessboard when it actually becomes about who we really are and how we really operate in the world. ironically for me, for my faith to become more material in that way and understanding myself and understanding what it means to be a human being, it's drawn me closer uh, to God. And I really understand what it is um, that Jesus offers me daily and what what I'm called to walk in. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. So I'm going to read this passage of scripture in just a moment, but let's uh, open in prayer. So Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here and that you are with us. And that you are for us. You are not against us. Lord, we come before you um, with open hearts and minds. Um, That many of us carry with us these illusions um, that prevent us from being honest with where we are at in life. uh, And that prevents us from being honest with you. Lord, that some of us feel this temptation to um, put on a, a facade that is so convincing that we even... Deceive ourselves into thinking um, that we're a certain way. Uh, and Lord, others of us are so compounded by uh fear or uh self-hatred um, that we can't see anything beautiful or anything good. And so, Lord, I pray, even as we enter into your uh your presence this morning, that your Holy Spirit uh, would move in each one of us that you would teach us how to see ourselves through your eyes, which is to see ourselves honestly, to see all of our most beautiful qualities, but also to honestly take stock of those things that prevent us from, from loving you well or loving other people well or certainly loving ourselves well. Um, that's what we're here to do, Lord. We're here to be transformed. We have a high expectation um, that we're going to meet you here today. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're going to be reading uh, Galatians 6, 1 through 10, and we're going to read it. Um, every Sunday for three months, but we're going to bounce around in a few different, uh, translations. And today we're going to be looking at the message translation, which is the inspiration for uh, the title of this series. And I love, you know, again, the message it's, it can be somewhat controversial. People say, well, it's not an accurate translation which I understand and I think that's super valid. But I, th- I love the way that Eugene Peterson phrases a lot of this because for, for many of you who are church kids like myself, you probably grew up reading like the NIV or something. And it's like, you're so familiar with the language that it loses its meaning over time. We have all these like little Christian phrases and we're like, don't you believe in grace? I believe in grace, ha <laughs> ha, grace is great. And you're like, what's grace? And you're like, ah, I don't know. I love what Eugene does, the way he translates a lot of this scripture Um, is the, he brings it to life and he, he puts it, uh, in a very specific phrasing that helps us uh, to step deeper into what, uh, Paul is really trying to convey. So this is Galatians six, one through 10 in the message, live creatively friends. If someone falls into sin, forgivingly, restore him, saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day's out, stoop down. And reach out to those who are oppressed. Share their burdens. And forgivingly, sorry. This is why you should never read things off your phone. I need like a a real physical Bible, like a good Pentecostal preacher. (laughs) Um, Saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day's out. Stoop down and reach out to those who are oppressed. Share their burdens. And so complete Christ's law. If you think you're too good for that, you are badly deceived. Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you have been given, and then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Be very sure now you who have been trained to a self-sufficient maturity, that you enter into a generous common life with those who have trained you sharing all the good things that you have and experience. Don't be misled. No one makes a fool of God. What a person plants, he will harvest the person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. All he'll have to show for his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of real life, eternal life. So let's not allow ourselves to get fatigued doing good. At the right time, we will harvest a good crop if we don't give up or quit. Right now, therefore, every time we get the chance, let us work for the benefit of all, starting with the people closest to us in the community of faith. So last week we talked about this uh, seeming paradox within Paul's writings. Last week we read the NIV version. It's this, carry each other's burdens, and in that you fulfill the law of Christ, for each one should carry their own load. And we talked about this paradox that we're to carry our own burdens, and then we're to carry each other's loads. And what are the differences between those things? So we talked about that uh, they each carrying their own burden, it's like, almost like a nap stack or a day pack. There are certain things that are your responsibility that you are to carry. And they carry each other's loads, it's, it's more like you know a, a very uh, large pack, perhaps one that would be, need two people to carry on a stretcher um, that's required. And so we talked through some of those potential things uh, last week. So um, even part of our community groups this week was to, to kind of parse out how would we define what's in our personal pack and then what's in a load. So um, anybody, give me an example. What's something that's your responsibility, your personal responsibility Your feelings. Your feelings are your responsibility. You cannot say, Megan, you made me feel this. Because you didn't. Perhaps you did something, and it wasn't a nice thing, but then I had an emotional response to that. Those feelings are my responsibility. What else? What else is my responsibility? Your individual actions. Your individual actions. Something. Your time, your estate. Oh, history. (laughs) Your estate, potentially, unless you have a really good lawyer, (laughs) which I do. Uh, now, what, what are things that we carry together? What's something that you're not meant to carry alone? My family. Your family. Yeah. Especially yours. Uh, what was that up here? <laughs> Coffee? Coffee. Co- conflict. I'm not hearing really, really well today. Yes. Conflict. Absolutely. Like anything that relates to more than one person, really. Right. If there, if there's relational brokenness, there's conflict, um, that requires that we carry that together. Absolutely. Anything else? Your Loneliness, your reaction, your reaction. I would say your reaction is actually an individual thing, right? I guess. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So like we said last week, there's not a clear delineated line between these are the things that go in your backpack, these are the things you're meant to carry together. It's always going to be in flux. There's a kind of a tension there. Um, But it doesn't mean that we don't seek out as much as possible what is ours to carry and what do we carry uh, together. And that's something that we do uh, discovering alongside of one another. We have to work that out together. And I think that's a very good gauge of what it means to be mature. A lot of times maturity is measured by um, what do I abdicate that is actually my responsibility, okay? When I blame other people for how I feel, when I blame other people for my actions, uh, when I blame other people for the thoughts that I have, that's, a, that's immaturity. Um, and it's learning how to own those things more. And we talked about like the serenity prayer, grant Lord, um, the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And that's what it means to grow up is to learn what do I own in myself, um, that I cannot be blaming other people for. And then what are the things that are actually outside of my control or things that I, I can't fix on my own that I actually need to ask somebody for help. So today, um, as I said, I want us to focus on how important it is that we know ourselves. I think for many of us that grew up in the Christian household, we're told to focus on ourselves is selfish. Uh, That if you do any kind of self work, um, you are being deceived. You are following the ways of the world. You're just supposed to focus on Christ. I remember several years ago, um, an old friend of mine in Nashville posted this query on Facebook. And it said, hey, everyone, I just got invited to this event that's Enneagram and tarot card readings. What do you all think about this? Now, I could smell a trap from about 100 miles away now. And most people's responses were like, well, the Enneagram seems like a very good system for your knowing yourself. Tarot cards, I'm not so sure about that. Like, that doesn't really seem like something I want to mess with. So at the end of it, after everybody, she says, thanks, everybody, for your input. I have decided that I would rather focus on the nine fruits of the Spirit than the nine personality types. And I was just like, full body roll. I was like, ugh. <laughs> You know, uh, but that's a very common thing that we're, we're raised, especially if you're raised in kind of perhaps evangelical settings or whatever it might be that, oh, don't focus on yourself. Just focus on Christ. Don't do, don't look inward. Just look heavenward. These kinds of things are often woven into us. Um, and I think that that's very problematic. And it's not actually true, authentic Christianity. This is three quotes uh, from three absolute titans in the Christian household. First, from St. Augustine in the 5th century. Uh, he said, grant, Lord, that I might know myself, that I might know thee. And then in the 15th century, Thomas uh, Akempis, who was a, a, Christian, a German Christian thinker, said that a humble knowledge of thyself is a surer way to God than a deep search after learning saying you can read all the books and you can listen to all the podcasts you want, but to know yourself humbly before the Lord is a, is a quicker way to God than any uh, amount of degrees. And then finally, John Calvin, the 16th century without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God without you knowing yourself. There is no true knowledge of God. I think a lot of times our selfish tendencies, the things that many of us were taught to, to be afraid of, or to, to hold at arm's length and just keep focusing on Jesus. A lot of times our selfish tendencies are in fact, a result of our inability or our unwillingness to do the kind of soul searching work that can open us up to the spirit of Christ within us to refuse to know ourselves is to refuse to open up our stories, to allow God to begin to do the work within us. Right, and then in that, when we le- find ourselves in that place, God just continues to be some sort of, um, you know, anthropomorphic idea that lives out there. This kind of sky daddy thing comes from us, refusing to know ourselves. God is just a concept. But when we know ourselves, when we know the, 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 the weight and the gravity of what it means to be a human being amongst other human beings, that, that idea of God becomes tangible and becomes real because to know ourselves is to allow ourselves to be fully human, which enables us to draw close to God and offer grace to others. How many of you have a very hard time letting yourself be a human being? How many of you hold yourself to ridiculously high standards, or you think that St. Peter is up there with the SAT, like you're taking a test every single day to see if you're going to get into heaven, right? It's amazing um, that we are so unforgiving and allowing ourselves to be human beings. And this is the, the, I think, the radical nature of the free will that God has given us. I've talked about this many times that we are the only thing in creation that can actively choose to disagree to be what it is. Hamsters cannot stop being hamsters. They don't have free will. They're very good at it. They're the best thing in creation to be hamsters. And they worship God that way. And palm trees cannot wake up one day and decide not to be a palm tree. They glorify God by being palm trees. They are palm tree essenced. We're the only thing that can wake up one day and decide to not be what we are. Um, And part of that is because we do not want to be human. We want to be something else, or we have such a skewed idea of what it means to be a human being, not least within the Christian household. And I think it's this uncomfortability in receiving the full spectrum of what it means to be a human being. Um, That means that we keep God at arm's length, that we hurt other people and that we hurt um, ourselves. But I think what's so powerful about learning how to to understand yourself um, in the full breadth of who you are is that you begin to see the fingerprint of God in your DNA. we talk about this a lot uh, in our church, especially about identity, finding our identity in Christ. What does that mean? And part of it means that we are image bearers. We bear the image of God rather than being the farthest thing from what God is like, you know, and then again, a lot of us perhaps grew up with that, like whatever pieces of garbage human beings are, God is obviously 100% completely the opposite of that. Like we are the farthest thing from what God is like, but in reality, if we are image bearers, if we are the children of God, then God looks like us. And most specifically in Christ, God is fully revealed in humanity. It is the the image of the human God. So for us to understand ourselves as human beings is to see within ourselves the DNA of God, what God is particularly like. But it also helps us to hone in on our deficiencies when we understand ourselves, when we understand our, our vices and our pitfalls, what sin consistently looks like in our lives, not as just some general legal statement that's being made about us in the cosmos, but in a very particular way that I have a pattern within myself of how I hurt other people and how I hurt myself. When I can begin to understand that and hone in on my own deficiencies, that also gives me a path towards God to say, God this is what I recognize within myself. Thomas Akempis, uh, who I just mentioned, said, if we could erase one vice from our lives per year, we'd be doing very well, which I love. But it requires this honest self-examination. And it's a very hard thing for us to hold these two halves of our humanity together. That we are, within us are these great and awesome and beautiful gifts of God. We are created in his image, but we are also uh, profoundly capable of evil. I think one of the saddest things that I recognize now in this kind of this era of moving away from conventional religion in general is when people say, Oh no, 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 there's nothing wrong with you. Like you've been told your whole life, there's something wrong with you and there's nothing wrong with you. And this kind of willful ignorance, uh, to how capable we truly are as human beings of great evil. Several years ago, I had taken a mission team uh, to Poland. We had a sister church in Warsaw, and we got to take a day and go out to the Majdanek concentration camp, which is very unique uh, because it's one in which the the Red Army, the communist army, moved in so quickly that the Nazis had to just drop everything and run. So it was um, usually what they would do is try to erase all the evidence of what they were doing. It's a cold day in November. Poland is a cold place uh, in November. Uh, So there's almost nobody there. And I'm walking down this, this kind of gravel road between these barracks, and you know there's a, uh, one barrack that has 400,000 pairs of shoes that were getting ready to be shipped off to Berlin, that they had taken off um, the people in the concentration camp to sell on the streets and, and all of this. And I'm just kind of listening to the, the echo uh, of, my, of my boots on this gravel, kind of bouncing between uh, these, these you know, Nazi barracks. And I had this kind of chill. You're like, I'm walking where Nazis walked. Have any of you ever been to a concentration camp? Like, you, you are walking where Nazis have walked. It's a terrifying feeling. And I, there was, first of all, this initial kind of rejection, this alien otherness of this category called Nazi. Um, but there was a moment in that I felt like the Lord spoke to me and said, That's, that thing that was in each of them is in you as well. And that woke me up. Because a lot of times we like to think of evil people in this separate category, and oh, I would, I would be much, much better than that. And like, I am much stronger and I'm much more capable, or, or whatever. Like, that's truly, that could not be me. But to recognize, know that thing that is inside one of us is inside all of us. Uh, The writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was uh, sent by Stalin to the gulags in eastern Siberia for uh, writing critical letters, said that the line between good and evil does not run between parties and states and governments, but through every human heart. (coughs) Excuse me. We are all capable of amazing good, and we are all capable of phenomenal evil. And I think Christian theology is one of the few places that we are very honest with that radical weight of what it means to be a human being. So the more that we know ourselves, the more we can begin to see the fingerprints of God in our DNA and hone in on our deficiencies, but the more graceful we can be to other people because we allow people to be on their journey. Another sign of uh, immaturity, as I said, was you know, with this idea of like, we blame other people for our thoughts and feelings and actions is that we assume that everybody is supposed to be a human being in exactly the same way that I am. And why can't everybody get on the program and just do it the way that I'm doing it? Because obviously, I'm doing it well, right? This is what we often think. And I've recognized the more that I understand myself in these two halves of what it means to be a human being. But when I understand my personality in particular, this unique pattern that I have of thinking and feeling and doing, the more graceful I can be to other people to allow them their own personal journey. That they might not do things the way that I do. They don't think the same way that I do. They don't feel the same way that I do. And that's OK. And I love that in, even in this passage, Paul is saying, don't be impressed with yourself, but don't compare yourself to other people. Because comparison is the thief of joy. And part of what comparison is, is this expectation that every human being is supposed to function in exactly the same way. And I think a lot of our relational brokenness is because we think everybody should see things as clearly as we do. Or that they should behave um, as properly as we do or whatever it might be. And we love to punish one another for not doing it in the exact same way that we do. But the more that we know ourselves, the more we're able to open up that perspective to allow a diversity in the human uh, story that everyone else is on their own journey. And I see this so powerfully this, you know, allowing ourselves to be fully human. Um, which enables us to draw close to God, which enables us to offer grace to other people. I see this um, earlier in the, in the same letter that Paul writes uh, to the Galatians, this is Galatians chapter two, uh, beginning in the 17th verse. And again, this is one of those examples. uh, I encourage you this week to go and and read this in the NIV, but I really love the way that Peterson phrases this um, because I think it really makes it come alive uh, to me in this particular way. He says this, have some of you noticed that we're not yet perfect? <laughs> Anybody else notice that? Yeah. Have some of you noticed that we are not yet perfect? No great surprise, right? And are you ready to make the accusation that since people like me who go through Christ in order to get things right with God aren't perfectly virtuous, Christ must therefore be an accessory to sin? The accusation's frivolous. If I was trying to be good, I'd be rebuilding the same old barn that I tore down. I would be acting as a pretender. Remember the big argument in the Galatian churches, are these new converts to the way of Jesus supposed to be maintaining the Torah law? And are they supposed to get circumcised? Because all these people come up behind Paul and said, well, Paul gave you half a gospel. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but you've got to do all these things exactly the same way that we're doing it. Like you have to follow all the rules and you have to get circumcised and you have to live this very, very particular kind of lifestyle. And that's the whole point of why Paul's writing the letter to say, no, if you take all of that on, you're, you're, you're actually abdicating the right radical freedom that we have in Christ that we no longer live according to this finite set of rules in this very particular way of performance based religion. And so to try to add that back on is really to undo everything that Jesus is offering us. That's kind of the backdrop here. What actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. How about that? How many of you, how many of you just, that right there, that sounds like the gospel. That sounds like good news, good news, right? I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a law man so that I could be God's man. That one's a little cheesy, but... <laughs> He's a very old man. You know what I mean? Like he, he, he was cheesy in the best ways. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It's no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not going to go back on that. It is not clear to you that to go back to that old rule, keeping peer pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God. I refuse to do that to repudiate God's grace if a living relationship with God could come by rule keeping, then Christ died unnecessary. I love that. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. Perhaps that's the phrase that you're familiar with. And if this is one of those ex- uh, examples that in the Greek, the word that Paul uses for it is no longer I who live. It is the word ego which we would say is the ego. He's saying it's no longer my ego that's in charge and is running the show, but it's now Christ. The spirit of Christ has replaced my egocentric tendencies. And it's important that you recognize that this great exchange that all of us experience in the journey that we're walking, it's not erasing yourself, when we come to Christ, it doesn't mean that your, your personality is erased and you become some sort of an automaton and you're not allowed to have dreams and feelings and all of these different things. You're not allowed your humanity. It just means that you are in the process of those things being redeemed and redemption means to give new value to something that is already there, that God blesses the way that you are in the world. God blesses your creative tendencies. God blesses the way that you think or how you feel or what you naturally feel like you're called to do. He blesses all of those things, but he redeems them and shifts them, allows them to work for the kingdom. I think this is the beauty of the promise that God gives after the flood in Genesis. He says, I will no no longer destroy the world, but God enters into this arduous process of redeeming the world. And I think that's a promise that he makes to each one of us. He's saying, I'm not going to destroy you. I'm not going to scrap all these bits and pieces of who you are, but I'm going to enter into your life and and work with you to redeem piece by piece, every aspect of your personality till you look more like me. And it all begins at this central understanding of who am I at my core? Because your greatest gift to the world and your greatest liability usually sit right next to each other. Your greatest gift, the the most beautiful aspect of your personality that reflects God, that advances the kingdom, however you want to name it, that greatest gift that you have sits right next to your greatest liability. It's always on a knife's edge because the question is, what are you going to do with this one precious life that you have? As Paul says, make the, like do the creative best with what you've been given. And it's a question of stewardship or just allowing your ego to take over. And so when you steward those things well in the spirit of Christ, that's where you are a whole and healthy human being. And when you allow your ego to run amok and it flips over, that's often the place where you hurt yourself, you hurt other people and you reject God. So the question is, which of those two wolves are you feeding? What is guiding you? Is your ego guiding your decisions or is it the spirit of Christ? And I've said often, I really passionately believe that our core motivation as human beings is love, that we are attempting to claim or to reclaim a sense of love that perhaps we once felt we had, but was taken from us in a broken world. And that love looks different to different people. For some of us, love means security. For some people, it means affection. For some people, it might mean uh, empowerment. There's a lot of different ways. Um, to talk about love, but our personalities are the systems that we've developed subconsciously in how we're going to reclaim the thing that we feel like we have lost, which is love. And that's what motivates us into this battle between ego and Christ, between flesh and spirit is how am I trying to get what it is that I so earnestly desire in the world? Um, now I, many of you know that I, I, I am a big fan of the Enneagram personality system. I think it works really well. It's a wonderful tool. Um, it certainly does not open you up to possession by Satan. As far as I've seen so far, um, it's got nothing to do with tarot cards. Um, I know the symbol is really kooky, but nine sided shapes are just kooky shapes. Um, and I really thought about obscuring this, this next bit just so you wouldn't be able to see it. But whatever, mo- most of you know the system. If you don't, it'll still work. But I've kind of worked uh, with this, this idea that there are essentially these nine main personality types, but there's different shades in all of them. And what does it look like when we're pursuing love, like how I perceive love, and then how I go out into the world to find love? And how, what happens when my ego takes over that whole process of seeking out love and my pursuit of love becomes almost compulsive or I start doing it without reflection? Or what does it look like for me to be in Christ, which means to be fully realized in God, uh, to find my identity there and my intimacy with him first, and then to put energy out into the world. And so these are kind of essentially nine messages of what I think often happens within us. And so when you came in today, Boom, there it is. Uh, When you came in today, you were given uh, a clipboard and a half sheet of paper. I'm going to read over those and talk through them. And I just want you to jot down at the top of the page which of these most resonates with you. And don't start at the beginning and just count and go, well, I'm a four, so I must be number four. Like, actually listen to what I'm saying, because, Personality systems, again, can be that deceitful facade that we put on to convince ourselves that we're a certain way and that other people are are some other way, Uh, but genuinely listen. Like we should all resonate with all of these to some degree, but some of them will just resonate a little bit more than others. So number one, and this would resonate with Paul a lot because this is very much uh, the way that Paul was in the world. You can work really hard or you can be in Christ. You can work really, really hard and you can think that there's some sort of, you know, SAT in the sky that you're constantly being graded on to see if you're worthy of getting in, or you can learn how to rest and be in Christ. So the question becomes, is it about works or is it about grace? Because what happens when we, our ego takes over and we enter into that works based mentality, I have to perform and I have to achieve and I have to do everything correctly is it leads us to a sense of resentment, which is a very particular kind of anger. And it's a resentment against ourselves that we cannot measure up. And we hold ourselves back by this very particular form of anger. And so if this is you, your journey is to move from a place of of perpetual resentment to learning how to live in serenity. And serenity is a perspective of uh, relinquishment of opening up and of allowing grace uh, to move in you and then allowing grace to move through you. Number two, you can be useful and nice or you can be in Christ. There's a lot of people that potentially grew up within the church because we're told to be Christian <laughs> uh, is to be nice and to be Christian is to be useful. Um, we have this conviction that God is nice And sanctification means that we're going to be nice also when God is done with us. And the problem is that we applaud these kinds of behaviors in people because it works for the rest of us. But what often happens when we believe that that egocentric nature of my, my, my purpose, my value is in being useful and being nice to people is that we reduce ourselves to a function. And we think I'm only wanted because of what it is that I have to offer. And so here, the question of like ego and Christ is, am I merely a function or am I actually desired for who I am? Am I worthy of love and affection? Not because of what I do, but because of who I am. And folks that live here, there's tends to be a very subversive form of pride. And this pride means I take care of other people's needs without having to recognize or uh, admit to my own needs. And the life journey becomes how to move from pride to humility, which is a true, genuine openness to recognize that I am loved just as I am. And that gives me permission to have needs, to have desires, to have uh, inefficiencies within me and that be okay. Number three, you can be impressive and admired or you can be in Christ. You can be impressive you can be applauded for all of your achievements, for the perception uh, that you have of being somebody who is strong and capable and winning and charming and achieves a lot of amazing things. Uh, and you can be admired for all of your achievements in life, or you can actually be in Christ. And this comes to this idea of the image that I project into the world, the winning image that I offer others, that I offer God and potentially even that I offer myself because the kind of the deadly sin here would be deceit. Um, But the biggest deceit of all is the one that we deceive ourselves with when we start to believe our own hype and we begin to believe that our value uh, to the world is the image that we have cultivated. But the challenge of this like ego to Christ thing is am I all, am I truly my image or am I actually valued for who I really am, including my deficiencies and my failures and all of these things that are all part of who I am as well. And so this life journey becomes moving from deceit to authenticity and honesty. Can I allow myself to be truly an authentic person because the difficulty for a lot of people in this category is that even that attempt to be humble and honest and open still becomes a sales pitch. Like I'll, I'll show you my weaknesses in order to continue to show me, show you I'm the kind of person who's vulnerable and admits their weaknesses. So there, it's like so a lot of these things, they double up, but it continues to be this ego fixation. Number four, you can be unique and independent or you can be in Christ. A lot of times we have this voracious desire to be unique. I think to be a human is always to live in this this tension between individuality and belonging. Because the more that we belong to a group or a tribe, the less we're allowed to be an an individual. Because you're kind of, generally speaking, looking towards moving away from any kind of individual markings. We have to think the same, feel the same, act the same, dress the same, speak the same, and so on. But to be an individual and, and to be so compulsively an individual means that we cannot belong, because any kind of belonging is going to ask something of us that might ask us to compromise our uniqueness. And so we're always caught in this tension of individuality and belonging. And I think a lot of the people that are stuck here confuse being unique with being seen. And to be seen has almost nothing to do with how much we set ourselves apart From the flock. It has everything to do with being seen um, as a valued individual who is precious. And the problem when we live out of our ego fixation here, this compulsive need for uniqueness or independence, is that we are we are envious. Envy means that we we look at what other people have uh, and we feel like they've got it and I don't. Because other people appear to be seen and accepted and so on, and I don't have that. And this leads to a radical emotional uh, up and down roller coaster. But the life journey is to move from envy to equanimity. Equanimity means a sense of calmness and consistency to know that at all points in my life, I am seen by God, that God considers me precious and has nothing to do with the clothes that I wear or the way that I speak or how I set myself apart uh, from the flock. Number five, you can try to figure it all out, or you can be in Christ. And this is the paradox, the struggle between understanding and mystery. That some of us, we have this compulsive need. We believe knowledge is power. And so we go out trying to gobble up as much knowledge as we can. If I can just figure out if, how everything works, if I can really just get the exact right language for penal substitutionary atonement theory and the way that that operates and what it has to do with sanctification. And I don't, you know, like we just get so wrapped up, you know, like some of the, like the, the, the cruelest people I've ever met are theologians, you know, because it's very easy for us to believe if I have enough knowledge, uh, if I can get it all fit into these certain paradigms and processes and whatnot, then I've got it all sorted out but that prevents us from engaging in mystery and mystery means to be given over to something far bigger than ourselves that we cannot possibly understand. I've heard it spoken of. as like, it's like the, 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 the ship at the bottom of the ocean, the ship is saturated by the ocean and the ocean contains the ship, but the ship does not contain the ocean. And that's what mystery is to be saturated in the presence of God, where God contains everything that you are and you contain almost nothing of who God is, but you're still saturated by God's presence. That's mystery. And for folks here, they move from a sense of avarice, which is holding tightly and hoarding this information, trying to make it all work into a genuine open objectivity to be able to walk through the world and to see it clearly through mystery, which enables them to be more generous. Next, you can be safe and secure, or you can be in Christ. We confuse clarity and care. It's very true in our relationships with each other, and it's very true in our relationships with God. If everything was made simple and clear, then I would feel safe. And unfortunately, that is not the way the world works. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the world is very complex, and everything is complex. Everything, all of it. There's nothing that is simple. And we have to learn how do I let go of this compulsive need for clarity. That I need everything defined for me. I need everything to be simple. I need there to be no risk at all. And and so that, so that I can be sure, which is a counterfeit form of faith to a genuine place of learning that I am cared for. (laughs) that I'm going to be okay. And that means that we move from the sense of anxiety and fear that the world is chaotic and it's overwhelming uh, to a place of faith and courage that we are able to accept. Yes, the world is chaotic, but I'm going to be okay and God will take care of me. Next, you can be happy or you can be in Christ. You can be happy or you can be in Christ. Now, as I'm going through these, as I'm saying them, maybe you get offended in one way in particular that I phrased it. And I did that on purpose because I love to offend you. That's my passion in life. but. This is one of those that often feels very offensive to us. We say, well, at the end of the day, shouldn't we be happy? Why it's not as, it's not as black and white as like, there's either being happy or being Christ. The thing that that's stirring up in you means that you need to pay attention to what's going on here. Because a lot of times we have this compulsive pursuit of escapism that I want to leave behind, uh, the dark emotions. So I want to leave behind difficult situations and I just want to be happy. And that's ultimately what God wants for me. It's that moral therapeutic deism that, that, um, um, that you were talking about years ago, Steve, that like God, uh, is nice and God wants me to feel nice and feel comfortable and to be happy. That's the, that's basically what God wants for me. Um, and off what it leads us to is a kind of escapist sort of life where we're constantly flitting to and fro. We cannot commit to anything. We're, we're, we're pursuing every uh, whim of what it is that we become very gluttonous. You know, gluttony isn't always about uh, food. Gluttony can be about experiences. It can be about people um, that we're just compulsively gobbling up things that are trying to make us happy. But it's all temporary and it continues to be like sand that slips through our fingers. Um, but when we are in Christ, we are grounded we find a sense of stability, that, that eternal perspective of our identity that is not uh, so privy to the winds of the constant you know, pushing back and forth by the waves. And we enter into a sober joy, a real, well, let's say and that's the irony I mean, of all of these, but I think this one especially, you actually get what you really want. Like you don't actually want to be happy. You want joy. And joy is this kind of grounded understanding of the beauty of life itself. Um, but that ironically comes from letting go of that compulsive need to be happy. Next, you can be strong and you can be in control, or you can be in Christ. For some of us, it's about having uh, power, it's about um, being self motivated, it's about being. Uh, like being the one to say, I'm going to be the one to change the world or to fix things or whatever it might be. And that can serve really, really, really well. But when we become compulsive in that, we shut ourselves up and say, well, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to be the one with power. We end up steamrolling other people. Um, we end up hurting and exhausting ourselves. Because we just become kind of this, you know, this, this need to just keep breaking down barriers or whatever it might be. Um, and we keep ourselves very distant from God. When I've said before many times, like I I like how Richard Rohr says that sin is when we overdo our strengths, like God has given each of us gifts and, and ways of being in the world. But when we push too hard into the world out of our ego with those things, that's where it becomes that liability and so for people here, it's to learn the art of relinquishment, which is a chosen powerlessness, um, to, to put ourselves before God, innocent and tender and in need, to put ourselves in front of other people as innocent and tender and in need because that compulsive desire for power, uh, we call that lust. And it's when we, uh, we begin to objectify other people sometimes that's sexual, but not always like this compulsive need to steamroll others and to turn people into objects. Um, but we move from lust into a place of innocence which to allow ourselves the tenderness of being a human being and then to bless other people with that. And then finally you can be unaffected by life or you can be in Christ. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago as well, that how often we confuse comfort and peace. Someone had asked me, um, I have a hard time dealing with politics because I feel like it robs me of my peace. What do I do? I said, well, I, th- I think when you say peace, you actually mean comfortability. And that's not the same thing because we're so geared towards feeling in our modern culture um, that we settle for counterfeit forms of peace, that if something makes me feel conflict or feel Uneasy. God doesn't want me to feel that way. And so I avoid it at all costs. But the sad thing is that it actually prevents us from getting the thing that we really do want, which is real peace. But peace means like the word Shalom means togetherness and wholeness. And sometimes in order to get there, there must be conflict and there must be difficult feelings. And so this desire to be unaffected by life is to constantly hold uh, things at arm's length and say, I'm not going to get too invested. I'm not going to open up my heart too much. I'm not going to put myself out there too much. I'm going to continue to retreat into myself. And the deadly sin here is sloth. And there's a proverb that says like a door on its hinges, the slothful man is in his bed. You know, that sound like just turning over, just like, Nope, I'm going to continue to shield myself from the world, but to be in Christ is to learn The difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking and to enter into that uh, beautiful, tumultuous relationship with God, where we pick a fight with God, where we wrestle with God to enter in to do that same thing with other people. And that we find there when we allow ourselves to be affected, to feel the waves of feeling that come in this chaos of life is to actually enter into this deeper place of being in Christ finding ourselves learning what holy action really looks like. So um, I'm going to invite the, the band to come up. And on that, that sheet, um, I hope that one of those nine things uh, resonated with you and that you were able to write that at the top. Because this is what so often happens. And again, this is going to be an oversimplification, this little uh, chart that I made. Next slide. Nope. <laughs> There's this way in which we understand in which we pursue love, OK? And that was imprinted on us from an early age. And when we compulsively enter into that need to find love, to reclaim love, we allow our ego into the front seat to drive, or as Paul talks about it, as the flesh. And that's often where our vices come from. That's where that compulsive thinking and doing what I mean by compulsive, I mean it's without any sense of reflection or when we just fully indulge ourselves in something. So we just let our thoughts run wild. We just let our feelings completely take over. Or we just start doing things without any sense of reflection or restraint. And this is what often leads us in our spiritual journey to burnout and to cynicism. Um, because we're, we're not regulating, we're not stewarding in any way uh, this, this one precious life that we've been given. And from that place, we begin to hurt other people. Um, whether it's through pulling away from them, from clinging to them, or being aggressive. We hurt ourselves. We start to tell ourselves awful messages when we're in that place of cynicism and burnout, um, when we believe that our ego is who we really are. Uh, and that's the place often where we reject God. And I think we're, we're very good at taking everything that's going on within us and then just blaming Sky Daddy and just saying like, well, it's, it's God's fault that all these things are happening to me. But when we learn how to live in the spirit of Christ, to enter into that co-creative process of redeeming our personalities, we begin to show the virtues because we see in Christ all of these virtues in their full form. We begin to learn discernment and wisdom, when to act, when to hold back, when to, uh, to be able to process our feelings creatively, when to be able, learning how to think well, we learn these skills, of discernment and wisdom that do not come naturally to any of us. And over time, they, they move from being uh, first nature to second nature. Uh, in this place, we learn presence and longevity. We're in it for the long haul. We know how to bless our limitations, to create boundaries that help us to stay in this so that our, our faith in God and our presence to other people is not constantly dictated by whatever we're feeling that day, but over years and decades, we find a sense of consistency in who we are. We learn how to love other people really well, which first of all begins by allowing them their humanity and their respective journeys. Um, And how do we offer them a co-suffering presence for the long haul? We learn how to love ourselves, to offer ourselves grace when we don't understand what's happening within us and saying, that's okay, I'm loved by God. Um, And we have a desire to be with God, not to perform for God, not to do lots of things for Him, but just to naturally settle into that precious place of being with God. So, I'm gonna give you a couple minutes, and I want you to reflect um, on the second half of that form um, from that core motivator that you have in love. What does it look like when the ego takes the front seat for you uh, and you enter into this compulsive thinking, feeling, and doing? Uh, but what does it look like in those moments when you have truly found yourself in Christ? Um, so to, we're going to take some time to do this. So I'm going to give you uh, probably two, three minutes uh, to reflect on your own time. Then I'll call us back into worship. Give you about 30 more seconds. greatest gifts uh, that God gives us through the Holy Spirit is self-awareness and to be able to see ourselves through the eyes of God in all of our greatest, most beautiful characteristics and all of our deepest proclivities, uh, for evil. Uh, and to know that all of that's accepted and all of that's welcomed into God's presence but the more that we learn the particular language that helps us to see ourselves clearly, the more ownership that we can take of the journey that we're on with God to endeavor, to inhabit this identity that we have in Christ and to relinquish uh, the hold that our ego has uh, over who we are and how we operate, how we treat other people, how we see ourselves uh, and certainly how it is that we approach God. Um, So I want to invite you to stand with me. And if you need more time uh, to, to, to write and to journal, of course, by all means. Um, and I'm gonna invite some of our leaders and our elders to come down to either side. These are people who have committed uh, to be on that long path with you, uh, to pray over you, to bless you. If there's something that God is stirring up within you um, that you want uh, someone to come alongside of you in, that's what they're here for. If you just need a blessing, Uh, These people are there to bless you. I'm going to go ahead and and invite you guys to move now, um, leaders and elders. Um, And for the rest of us, as we enter into worship, it's to remain open to uh, just allowing the spirit of Jesus to do this kind of work in us. I think so often the work that he does, uh, it's almost in those moments when we don't realize it. Um, And I believe that that's one of the, the gifts of worship is that almost while we're not paying attention, God is doing something in us. And we find that when we leave this place, we're a little bit kinder. We're a little bit more grounded. Um, We're able to receive grace a little bit more, not because we're like fixated on our issues and our problems because that's not what I'm advocating for. But that we see ourselves in the full range of what it means to be human being, and to know at the end of the day we are still accepted and we're still loved. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to worship, and I'm going to encourage you to go uh, and to receive prayer um, for whatever God is doing in your heart right now. So heavenly Father, we thank you for the um, the awesome responsibility that it is to be a, a human being, to be fully seen and known by you. In all of our greatest gifts to the world, in all the ways that we uh, beautifully uh, paint a portrait of your heart, but also um, in all the darkness that we each carry within us, our capability for doing evil, for hurting other people, for hurting ourselves, for rejecting you. Lord, I thank you that in Christ, all of those things are welcome to the table. God, I pray as we worship, as we continue on this journey with you and with one another, that you would teach us how to receive grace. That the more that we know ourselves, that we are truly honest with ourselves, that we can give up on self-deceit or even self-hatred, which can so easily cloud our view. I pray that the more that we know ourselves, the more that we will know you. So bless us, Lord, as we bless you in this time of worship. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at citybeautifulch. We hope you join us again soon.